This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The National Defense Industrial Association puts out a report every year called Vital Signs. It assesses the health of the defense industrial base. And this year, for the first time, they gave a failing grade. Wes Hallman is NDIA's Senior Vice President for Strategy and Policy. Wes, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So what was the one most surprising thing that came out of this report for you? I think the most surprising thing was we really expected that we would have more new entrants this year into the defense industrial base. One of the things that we've seen over the years is a steady decrease on the number of new companies uh, garnering contracts. With this being the first year that we have COVID data, with the fact that the defense industrial base was seen somewhat as a safe haven, and with the Defense Production Act uh, contracts being let by the government to respond to the COVID crisis, we thought we'd see an increase and actually we saw a continued decrease by nearly 300 more companies uh, less new entrants over year over year. You know, as you said, this is the first full year that you can see the COVID pandemic um, effect fully. Can we blame everything on COVID? Is, is that where all the problems come from? No, uh, it, so what I would point to, like you said, we do this report every year if you look at previous reports, I mean, we were in the we were climbing or lowering down into the low 70s on some of these things. What what the pandemic really did was highlight many of the challenges we were already facing, whether those supply chain challenges, whether it was the number of new entrants challenges. Uh, there's various challenges there, and what what COVID really did was highlight those and drive them further further into the red. Well, supply chain is one of the signs that you looked at. It got a failing grade. Explain that. So uh, I think everybody's heard much about supply chains. These are, uh, you know, lead time on items, access to things, also workforce is a big piece of that. And we saw steady declines across the board on, on that. One of them is, is inventory management. So how long do you keep, how long do you turn, take you to turn inventory? What we saw is because supply chains were breaking down, those things were in, that were in inventory stayed there longer while they were waiting for other things, other parts to come in before they could produce things. So we saw across the board that supply chain issues were, were going down. One thing that was really interesting, we also have a survey section of this and, and on the supply chain portion of the survey when we said what are the biggest challenges, actually the workforce was, the, was performing the worst uh, there. And, and the very much the concerns that the skills gap is increasing in these companies as, as they are having turnover, they're not having the new people to come in on the backside. So are policymakers prioritizing mitigating supply chain issues and is that funded? So that's a, that's a phenomenal question. I think all of us are focused on, on, on workforce. I think you hear about it a lot. The, the issue with the workforce piece is, generally speaking, people see it as a state and local issue. So from the federal level, while it gets a lot of attention, I don't think there's a lot of funding. I mean, there, there are sources of funding, but a lot of it is, is local. What we need to do as a country is, is look at the problem, find what is working, and then scale it nationally, and we're not doing that. When it comes to other things, you saw the America Competes Act and the USICA uh, bill that had the CHIPS Act inside of it, you know, uh, funding that. I think we're getting after those things, but again, these things take time, and that time factor is gonna play in. 
So industrial security got a really low score, and this isn't just cybersecurity, which is a problem for everybody. It's also intellectual property theft. What's going on with that? So uh, I think it's no secret that uh, some of our competitors internationally have been uh, breaking into our system, stealing our intellectual property, and then uh, onshoring it and producing there and undercutting our, our uh, you know, our industry. Uh, if you look at the organic industrial base, some people see upwards of uh, over $600 billion a year in, in, uh, in lost uh, revenues and things. So, so it, it's really one of the great transfers of wealth in, 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 in the history of the world. What we see in the data and why it remains our lowest scoring is just the sheer number of cyber vulnerabilities and the ability to go in there and either take your data, which is what we're talking on intellectual property, corrupt your data, which is important, or just erase your data. All of that means that, that we're getting a lower and lower score there. Uh, we did see a slight decrease in the, uh, in the uh, really the, the level of vulnerability, so how bad it is, but that didn't make up for the fact that those vulnerabilities, the sheer number of them increased. Wes, I wanna ask you about uh, the state of innovation because there's over 40 technology incubators and accelerators in the DOD. Um, but there's been a decline in innovative startups coming into the department. Why is that? So one is the department's a hard place to do business with, right? So that's one of the things that I think is the great takeaway is that these companies are all in for the warfighter, but the fact is it's really hard. It's a, it, it, there are so many different uh, barriers to entry to come in. And the fact is when, it, when you talk about speed and scale, the commercial sector can do speed and scale much better than the, the government at this time. In fact, that, that's one of the things that, that I think that PPBE Commission wants to look at is how do we move faster because the faster you move, the more you're going to be able to bring those innovative companies that have these great ideas and want to get them into the warfighters' hands. So how's the state of basic research and investment in basic research? Because that's what's going to eventually drive innovation. I totally agree with you, and, and this is also something that, that we highlighted in last year's report and in this year's report. We still have the, the lowest level of federal investment in basic research since the mid-50s. Uh, and at the same time, our, our biggest competitor, China, has, uh, as a per percentage of GDP, is you know three, four, five times what we're spending on basic research. And remember, that's the innovation bank that we're going to withdraw on in the future. So we really do need to make those investments. So finally, there was one sign that did improve, and that's demand. Why was that? So remember that, that our, our uh, scores are off a three-year running average. And remember that, you know, Congress will pass a budget, but it takes a long time to then disperse that through contracting. And so there's an 18 to 22 month delay on the disbursement of that. So these, what you're seeing is really the echo of the increased uh, defense budgets in the previous administration. And so as disbursement has gone up, demand signals has gone up. Also, we continue to be the supplier of choice with our friends, allies, and partners overseas. And that remains strong as well. All right, well, Wes, thank you so much for coming in. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Coming next, how much money does the Pentagon need for fiscal 2023? Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Defense Department's biggest priorities and how inflation could change the game. We'll be right back.
With inflation now at 7.5%, the Defense Department is being squeezed. So, for fiscal year 23, my guest recommends a top-line defense budget of $816 billion. Retired Army Major General John Ferrari is a former budget official and currently a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. General, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So as I just mentioned, your number for the fiscal 23 defense budget is $816 billion. How did you come to that number? Well, if you look at what the Biden administration was planning to submit for defense, and defense is both the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, Nuclear Forces, and some other agencies, uh, for FY22, it was about $756 billion. Well, we know Congress is about to appropriate about $777 billion for 22. So for 23, if you take into account the pay raise that needs to be put in place, uh, and the amount of money that Congress has already added, about $20 billion to the defense top line for 22, and then the 7.5 inflation rate to the operating accounts, which fund readiness, you get to about $816 billion for the defense enterprise. All right, well, let's talk about each of those things, about where that extra funding should go. You said that you recommend a pay raise for service members. How much is that gonna cost? Yeah, so uh, the recommendation is 7% pay raise. Uh, the initial reporting from OMB is that the pay raise will instead be about 4.6%. Uh, inflation is running 7.5%, so the 4.6% won't, won't even cover uh, the amount of inflation. Uh, soldiers haven't felt this impact much yet. It's been muted because of the child tax credits, and so it's going to be a particular pain this year, and that'll cost about $12 billion above what was projected. You say that $20 billion uh, should be added to the Pentagon's procurement and research accounts. Explain that. Yeah, so every last year, uh, the Biden administration submitted a muted defense top line and, and a, lot of money, a lot of additional money for uh, the non-defense accounts. Congress has gone back and negotiated a top line of procure, added procurement of about $20 billion. Because what happens in the Pentagon is in order to hit the reduced top line, they cut procurement because they know that's what Congress is gonna add. So in order to get the budget through Congress quickly, right, the recommendation is let's not play budget games, let's just uh, appropriate or OMB should fund what's needed uh, and then we can get it through Congress much faster. So you say that another $20 billion should go towards readiness of the force. What's the problem currently with readiness? Yeah, the current problem with readiness is fuel prices are up 50%. And so if you're the Air Force or the Navy, that's gonna impact flying hours, steaming days. Uh, if you're the Army, all the other costs for spare parts, right? You either have to reduce, you have to reduce training at that point. Uh, and so 7.5% of the operations budget is about $20 billion. So that just keeps readiness the same. And you can see with operations in the Ukraine, operations in the Middle East and Syria, operations in Taiwan, right? The world is busier than ever and, and our adversaries are challenging us. And the last thing we need is untrained and unready forces. So after that, about $8 billion will be left over for advanced weapon systems such as hypersonics, space capabilities, et cetera. Is that enough to counter China's technological advancements? It's probably not enough to counter the advancements, but it is enough to avoid what General Milley has called a bloodletting within the Pentagon. Uh, so, you know, there is a thought that, hey, you know, we can get out of the Middle East. We don't have to be in Europe. We can cut those forces. 
So that $8 billion is meant to kind of blunt the edge of the bloodletting. Uh, there'll be additional funding needed uh, for procurement and other items for to 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 advance China. But but we really have to have a force that's capable of operating really in the Middle East, in Europe, and in the Asia Pacific region. And that's what that's what that will cost. So in your opinion, what does OMB need to be doing right now? So I think what OMB needs to be doing right now, in addition to giving the top line to the Defense Department and the other agencies, is working with Congress, in particular uh, the Appropriations Committees. The Appropriation Committees are right now working to finalize the top line for 22 and all the policy details. Right, The administration and the Congress can negotiate the top line simultaneously for 23. The budget is going to be submitted late. Congress has an election year coming up. If they can agree on the top line numbers now for 23, there's a small chance that Congress could enact that budget for 23 uh, before 1 October. Absent that, right, we're going to be under a continuing resolution. So we talk about these extra funds uh, for pay raises, for inflation, for procurement, but it likely won't show up until, you know, the middle of next year. Look, we're already in February now, we don't have a budget for 2022 with the midterms that's likely to happen again. Uh, so I think the best gift we can give to Russia and China is a defense department that's been funded adequately on time. And this is a way to do it. Negotiate the 23 top line right now and, and get it appropriated on time. Well, how likely is that uh, getting the fiscal 23 budget approved? Uh, has it ever happened before? Well, I mean, it, it has happened in the past many, many years ago, so it hasn't happened in the recent past. And like like I said, it's it's February going into it'll be March at least before 22. Uh, so it, it would be good if if the political establishment could get together before the midterm elections and adequately fund on time our government operations uh, before the elections. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. General, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. There's new evidence suggesting that military members who experience harmful exposures during service could be prone to higher risks for mental health, chronic diseases, and mortality. That's according to a new investigation co-authored by Jeffrey Howard. He's associate professor at the Department of Public Health at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Jeff, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. So how much higher were the mortality rates for post 9-11 vets who had experienced traumatic brain injury? Well, they were significantly higher, and it, it varied by cause of death, obviously, but uh, in some cases, they were twice as high. So then, but why? What was the cause of that higher mortality? Most of it was caused by accidental, accidental death and suicide, but we also found that uh, essentially all, uh, all causes of death had uh, uh, excess deaths uh, that were attributable to, to them. So this, uh, when you say accidents and suicide, was that directly attributable to the traumatic brain injury? Well, it's hard to say exactly. Uh, we know through the data that we have access to that those individuals had 
been diagnosed with a, a TBI. It's hard to say exactly how that connected to their to their death. What we do know is that in comparison to rates of accidents and suicides in the general population, that these individuals had much higher uh, mortality rates from these causes. I wonder if you factored in the severity of the traumatic brain injury. We did. Uh, we looked at, at both what we call mild uh, TBI, which would be uh, like a concussion. Uh, and then uh, we compared those two individuals who had what we refer to as moderate to severe TBI. And the moderate to severe TBI had much higher uh, mortality rates across all causes of death. What, was there higher mortality among vets who did not experience traumatic brain injury? Did you, did you look at that? We did look at that. So uh, vets that did not have any exposure or at least any known exposure to TBI still had uh, excess deaths uh, or higher mortality rates, if you will, uh, from accidents and suicides as well as homicide. You know, there are about 1.8 million post 9-11 military veterans with service-connected disabilities. It's much more than previous wars. How have vets fared in these post 9-11 wars compared to previous wars? Yeah, that's a great question. And that was one of the motivators behind this study is, uh, you know, after previous wars, uh, particularly World War II, Korea and Vietnam, there have been studies done that showed that uh, veterans had uh, you know, less mortality than the general population, in particular with cardiovascular disease. This was called the healthy soldier effect. And so we wanted to see if there's any degradation in that uh, for these post 9-11 veterans. And what we found is that there there is, in fact, uh, been sort of a reduction in this healthy soldier effect to the, to the extent that <clears throat> veterans overall uh, regardless of their TBI exposures, are having higher mortality. So what did you find in terms of the, the direct effects of PTSD and depression? Yeah, in this particular study, we did not look at that specifically. We have uh, investigated that in prior, uh, prior studies, and that does show that there's a linkage between PTSD uh, and mortality as well as other chronic diseases. Uh, we've looked specifically at the linkage between PTSD and increased risk for cardiovascular disease uh, specifically. And we have noted that the risk for cardiovascular disease are much higher in individuals who, uh, who have been diagnosed with PTSD. You also noticed higher deaths due to cancer. Do you know why? Yeah, that, that's a a good point. We we don't exactly know why. I mean, we have some hypotheses. This was really a, a pretty descriptive study, uh, mainly just to look at the overall trends. Um, and now what we're hoping is with this uh, increased awareness that with the fact that there's increased mortality across many different causes of death that we need to now focus in more specifically on what the, you know, what all the factors are that are, are actually leading to uh, cancer does, and you know, for example, uh, we at this point we we really don't know. Uh, we suspect that there are some harmful exposures, such as uh, environmental exposures, that uh, we were not able to to measure in this particular study. But that that's one of our uh, that's one thing that we suspect. And and burn pits uh, as well. Correct. Um, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about how you conducted the study? In other words, how many vets were studied and the diversity of the sample. Sure, yeah, we, we followed uh, 
roughly two and a half million veterans. The data were compiled from uh, both the Department of Defense and uh, Department of Veterans Affairs databases. And we were able to link those data to the what's called the National Death Index. And that's how we were able to ascertain the uh, the deaths in, in the in the population. And so uh, the study followed these individuals from 2002 through the end of 2018. Uh, so it's a, a pretty long period of time that we were able to uh, to, to measure uh, the mortality in this population. All right. Well, Jeff, I appreciate your uh, work on this, and uh, thank you so much for being on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find any interview and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. It's called Government Matters. And we have a new look. You can see more on our website at govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, 
include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.